Good morning. Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you have to say to us today. Amen. The scripture reading have to say to us today. Amen. The scripture reading from the Old Testament is Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord is good. It is he that made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament lesson on this Lord's Day comes to us from the book of Ephesians, the first chapter, verses 11 through 23. So listen now for God's word to the church. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will so that we who were the first to set our hope on Christ might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people the praise of his glory. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, and for this reason I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe, according to the working of his great power. God put this power to work in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him 
who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in 1560, a power struggle came to a head in Scotland when the Catholic Queen Regent Mary of Guise died in her sleep, Parliament saw an opportunity to reaffirm the frayed relationships with Protestant England, and to give spiritual voice to this shift, Parliament invited prominent Scottish pastors to compose a new Reformed confession. While five others participated, the reformer John Knox took the laboring oar, writing most of the document in less than four days. We know it today as the Scots Confession. Now, John Knox had many strengths, but tact was not one of them. If you read the Scots Confession, you will find that his descriptions of Catholicism in general and the Pope in particular were caustic, harsh, and very, very direct. And one of his most pointed criticisms skewered the idea that the Pope, as the anointed vicar of Christ, somehow wielded unilateral authority over the body of Christ. Knox thought it a preposterous notion, one that was directly contradicted by Scripture, including the passage from Ephesians that we have just heard. To quote Knox's actual words, our eternal God and Father, who by grace alone chose us in his Son, Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world was laid, appointed him to be our head, our brother, our pastor, and the great bishop of our souls. In other words, Christ, not the Pope, not anyone else, was, is, and always will be the head of the church. Our book of order, the constitutional rule book to which we ascribe as Presbyterians, lifts up this theological claim early and often. It is, we say, one of our foundational truths that Almighty God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead and set him above all rule and authority, has given to him all power in heaven and on earth, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. God has put all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and he has made Christ head of the church, which is his body. Now, these may seem like basic and simple truths, but it has never really been that simple. Our calling to be the church requires us as human beings to make decisions. So every year, every month, every day, even every hour, we have to decide what scripture is calling us to do and be, what God is calling us to do and to be. And because the church is a community, Those are communal decisions. In every age, the church has had to decide who gets to make those decisions in the community of faith, how consensus will be determined, how leaders will be chosen, how resources should be allocated, which ministries should be prioritized over others. Now, over time, the Catholic tradition established a hierarchy based on Scripture 
with a pope at the top of the pyramid. The Protestant tradition, also claiming scriptural authority, embraced a more democratic method. And either way, and all the other ways in between, for better or for worse, all of these approaches have tried to find faithful ways to guide and to limit power in the church. And all of them have been imperfect because we as humans are imperfect. To state it more succinctly, where there is power and where there are people, there will be struggles over power. That is what has been going on here at Mount Pleasant Presbyterian Church. A struggle over power, a struggle over authority, a struggle over how decisions should be made or, more accurately, who should make those decisions. My first real encounter with this struggle came before I ever arrived here, after I had been talking with your pastor nominating committee for a while, and when I reached out to references and others who were familiar with the church, I kept hearing a certain phrase, take back the church. And what I know now is that this move to take back the church was rooted not in polity or in reason, but in pain. The people who were raising that mantra felt marginalized by the power structure of this church. They were hurt that influence had either been taken from them or denied to them, and to protect themselves from that pain, they worked to take power for themselves so that they could control and shape a church that was more comfortable for them. And to be honest, we all do that to some degree. And we all believe at some level that we know what the church should be. And we think our hearts are true on those issues, that our priorities are clear and right on those issues. And the problem is that the vision of every person, barring none, is clouded by sin. None of us can be fully and truly objective. We can never really separate our own wants and our own desires from our view of the world. So the way that we use power, even in the church, will always be imperfect. I think that's what Paul, or the follower of Paul who wrote this letter to the Ephesians, saw in the church of the first century. By the time this letter was written, the church had been around for a while. Most scholars date this book, this letter, to the year 70 through 80 AD, somewhere in there. The first generation of Christian believers had come and gone, and a younger generation had taken its place. And meanwhile, the church had continued to grow and to change. It was no longer a loose band of stragglers and wanderers. Missionaries had taken the faith beyond the Eastern Mediterranean into Northern Africa, Asia Minor, and Southern Europe. The organization of the church was growing in complexity. Theological differences were emerging and various hierarchies were developing. In other words, the living vine of the church was taking deeper root, spreading out, 
and getting tangled, kind of like kudzu on the side of a southern highway. And in the midst of this rapid growth and development, the writer of this letter felt called to speak a pointed word about power. Into the midst of the kudzu thicket of the church, this letter to the Ephesians sends a prayer that the eyes of their hearts would be opened so that they could see clearly the way ahead. The path out of the tangle, that writer said, the way to open up clarity of vision depended completely on power that was not their own. The power, the wisdom, the revelation, the enlightenment was not something that they had to generate for themselves, but rather something that would be given to them. Given to them by the one source of every good thing. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, the letter says, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power. Not our great power, his great power. There's a trap that we often fall into as people of the church, especially, I would say, as hardworking Calvinists. A friend and colleague, Dr. Merwin Johnson, once described this temptation as the feeling that we sometimes have that, and these are his words, If it is to be, it is up to me. If worship is to be what it should be, then it's up to me. If the church is going to make its budget, it's up to me. If our youth are to be grounded in faith, then it's up to me. If I don't take care of this situation or that situation, then no one else will. If it is to be, it is up to me. And as Presbyterians, we say that we do not believe in works righteousness. We profess to believe that faith, not good deeds, will save us. And then we go out and we live in the exact opposite way. We convince ourselves that the survival of the church depends upon our wisdom, our vision, our sweat, our power. And what Dr. Johnson helped me to understand is that when we do this, we have completely misunderstood the true nature of power in the church of Jesus Christ. Ephesians puts us right. It reminds us as we try to chop ourselves through the kudzu brambles of whatever situation we might be in, it reminds us where true and healthy power comes from. It does not come from us. It comes from the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. God put this power to work in Christ, the letter continues. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all authority and rule and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the age to come. And God put all things under Christ's feet, and has made Christ the head 
over all things for the church, which is his body. So here's the crux of the matter. The church is not something that we take. It was never ours to take. It has always belonged to Christ. So we need to give it back. Give back the church. If you are struggling to push the church in a certain direction and it is obvious that the fruit of that work is not good, if people are being disrespected, if the work of the church is marked by a spirit of arrogance or rudeness, if love seems to be the furthest thing from anyone's mind, then maybe it is time for us to take our hands off the rudder and see where the Holy Spirit is trying to blow us. I can assure you that when Christ is in control of the church, it is in much better hands than when it is in ours. That's what the New Testament says again and again. It tells us repeatedly that we cannot hold this thing together on our own steam or on our own power. There is only one who can hold it together. There is only one power that can make this enterprise of the church work the way that it is supposed to work, and it is Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible. In him and only in him will all things hold together. And that is why God has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church. And here is the really good news. If we can do this, if we can take our hands off the rudder and give the church back to its rightful owner, that is when hope shows up. That is when peace appears. That is when we find wisdom we never knew we had. That is when our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, are opened and the path ahead becomes clear. And if you don't believe me, believe this ancient prayer of the body of Christ. I pray that the Lord God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. It's my suspicion that for a long time, Mount Pleasant Presbyterian has struggled with its identity a little bit. For many of you, this is the church of your ancestry you grew up here, you baptized your children here, you were married here, you said goodbye to loved ones here. Many of you remember when this was a small, happy church in a quiet, old seaside village. Others of you have come more recently, attracted by vibrant mission and the call to serve God's people near and far. And in all these ways, and many more, I have heard you talk with deep gratitude and reverence and passion about what you call my church. And that is a good and beautiful thing. As long as it means that this is the place 
where you most strongly feel God's presence and guidance in your life, the place where you feel most connected to the living vine of the body of Christ. But when my church becomes a mantra of power, when the words suggest that some families are more important than other families, when it tends to separate insiders who belong from outsiders who do not, then maybe it is time for us to think about giving the church back. In the world today, it is increasingly easy to post signs that say, no strangers allowed. Out there in the world, signs like that are erected out of fear, mistrust, defensiveness. They are often erected after episodes when security has been violated, when people want to make sure that a certain kind of pain will never be felt again. As Pastor Alan Bream has observed, those signs even make sense in the church but for a very different reason. Here, he says, no strangers allowed has another meaning. Here, because Christ is in charge, because here in the church all things have been put under Christ's feet, no strangers allowed means that nobody here can be called a stranger. It means that if we can surrender our own claims on power, if we dare to give the church back to Christ its head and see where he might lead the church, then everyone who is drawn here can find in this body a life-giving connection to the living vine of the church. As we part, this is my prayer for you and for me. Instead of having a small number of people work to take back the church, let's give it back. Instead of thinking that if it is to be, it's up to me, let's trust that Jesus Christ as our head, our brother, our pastor, and the great bishop of our souls will guide us in the direction we should go with the apostle of old, I pray for you. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.